I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show, everyone. Steve D is with me, and in a week where Apple ditched its proposed hike in iPhone manufacturing, Amazon announced another Prime Day, and the Labour Party uh, announced their plans to start their own energy company, we're talking about none of that stuff. Uh, Steve's with me. We've got more interesting things to deal with instead. How are you, Steve? Uh, I am pretty well, Steve, to be honest. I've just come back from a, a break. I've been uh, at Centre Parks with my uh, parents and my brother and his family. Uh, we decided that we would... We got this for my um, dad for uh, one of his... I think it's his 70th birthday, like two years ago, and it's been put off and put off and put off because of COVID. And we've finally been able to go, and all, well, the Queen the queen nearly ruined that for us. Um, but yeah, we had loads of activities booked, so I've tried my hand at archery. I'll have you know, uh, I took the advice uh, a little bit too literally. The instructor told me to look down the bow uh, as I was firing the string, and I managed to fire the string into the back of my own head. Um, so yeah, he was like, y- yeah, not that literally. I was like, well, you, you know, I take things... <laughs> I'd say I was taking your advice very literally. Uh, it turns out, Steve, I'm not going to make an archer. Um, I, I did hit the yellow, but I think it was more out of pure accident than uh, than uh, than any skill. But yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling a little bit recharged. Uh, I've come back to a mountain of work, as is the case when you only have a couple of days off. Uh, uh, people don't bother doing your work; they just kind of pile it on the corner of your desk and wait for you to come back. Uh, but yeah, bit on catch up, Steve. Are you doing okay? I'm I'm doing okay. I've also been on a break, but I'm interested in your archery thing, partly because I don't really see you as a kind of medieval type. Um, but I... Briotuck? Yeah, we didn't... <laughs> he wasn't a... Yeah, okay. Uh, he might have been then. <laughs> um, one of my first jobs, actually, we didn't talk about this off air, so we're learning this as we go, uh, was actually instructing archery uh, on a, a kid's camp um, to like five and seven-year-olds and letting them loose with bows and arrows. And I'm still here. Uh, just about. Um, I instructed them to do archery and I instructed them to do fencing and Ofsted said it was excellent, which should undermine everybody's confidence in Ofsted. Uh, but yeah, I I don't know quite. They didn't really tell us what to do when someone fires a bow into the back of their own head. They didn't really cover in the training the possibility that someone someone might do that. Yes, uh, I am quite unique in my stupidity at times. Um, I mean, my wife... Uh, she had the uh, the brace on her arm to stop the uh, bow twanging against mm-hmm. her arm, and uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't until the very last shot that she said that it was you know her arm was really really hurting, and rather than just adjust the brace to the area where the bow was quite blatantly twanging her, she was ha- having it in the correct position as uh, what I guess is some kind of fashion accessory. So she has. Uh, I think probably about an eight inch by four inch bruise on the side of her arm now, which looks really quite uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, we're I guess we're equally as bad as each other. 
Oof. Okay, right. Never instructing you for archery. There. Never instructing anyone for archery, by the way. Didn't enjoy that job very much. Very much hard work and carrying things around. Uh, but yeah, I've also had a break uh, this week. I've been up to Scotland on one of your Alstom trains. And then I came back on another one of your Alstom trains. And I would describe the quality of your Alstom trains as highly uneven. Uh, one of them going up was one of the nicest trains we've been on. We got stuck in Wolverhampton for two hours, which put us on a different train to what we were meant to be on. That was a really nice one. One coming back, not that nice. Um, but uh, it was a good trip on the whole. Um, we were visiting what is my son's one remaining great-grandparent, um, which is my wife's dad's mother, uh, is the only one he has left. So he's been to see her, and she's seen him. And it's hard to know which one of them remembers it better, uh, to be honest. But um, it was a nice trip. It was nice to get up there and uh, see some people. And, yeah, it's uh, we've all come back poorly. Basically, we contracted some form of, uh, or uh, my mother-in-law, sorry, contracted some form of tummy bug and gave that to kind of everyone else via um, just being in contact over the, the week. So um, I'm hoping this isn't going to be some epic podcasting material where you all get to see what I just had for dinner. But you never know. Always nice to have a bit of Jeopardy on the show, isn't it? Hmm. What did you have for dinner? I had gusto pesto pasta. Uh, it wasn't actually official gusto. I was remaking that recipe. Yeah, that doesn't sound very tasty second time around. Hmm. Yeah, I just tasted a bit of it on the way back up. It tasted a lot, much the same, if I'm honest. But anyway, enough about this. <laughs> um, we're we're offending all of our listeners. Uh, we've got loads to talk about this week. There's been a budget, uh, well, not a budget, a mini budget, a kind of policy announcement. Um, and we've got loads of stuff about stocks because markets are going everywhere, mostly downwards. Um, but let's get started then with this thing on the mini budget, because it's what I've been thinking about quite a lot while I've been away. A feature of going away with the in-laws is you have plenty of time to think about stuff. Um, and a long train journey up to Scotland is quite helpful for this sort of thing. So I've been listening to quite a lot of the kind of coverage of the policy announcement, call it that, or mini budget. Um, and I'm really confused by quite a lot of it because a lot of it seems to me to not really make any sense. But if you're feeling the same way as me, here's what I'm thinking about it. And you can either take it or leave it or, or neither of it, basically. So, so when I try and make sense of this mini budget thing, I start off by going back about six weeks. Six weeks ago, feels like a long time ago now, but Boris Johnson is still prime minister um, and he has a problem. Uh, the problem he has is that energy bills are looking like they're about to go to £3,549 pounds on average per year. Um, and he basically wants people to put up with it. Uh, he says, you can have 400 quid back, um, so we'll call it 3150 or so, but your energy bills are going to... They're going to go up quite a lot from a sort of 1900 or so amount. Uh, OK, exit Boris Johnson out of the picture. Uh, and enter Liz Truss, uh, who wins the election to replace him, the internal election amongst the Conservatives. First thing she thinks is, this is intolerable. Uh, we must find a way of bringing down people's energy bills. So we're going to cap them at 2,500 on average. Uh, OK, so that's a thing that we're going to do the previous government wasn't prepared to do. The obvious question becomes, how on earth are we going to pay for this sort of thing? Because subsidising people's energy bills is going to be expensive. It's going to cost us about 60 billion in the six months starting, well, now in October. Fair enough. Uh, so you have two options if you're a government. You can either tax things to try and raise the money or you can borrow it, basically. And if you tax it, uh, you need to deal with the idea that you will kind of curb economic growth in your country. And if you borrow it, you have to deal with the question of how the hell you're going to pay it back again. And basically, as I understand it, this budget was the government's way of saying, look, here is the plan, uh, or at least here is how we plan to fund that thing, at least. 
and the government's basically said we're going to borrow it all. Um, so borrowing about 60 billion to fund six months worth of stuff and then we're going to pay it back either by trying to tax people or by growing the economy and paying it back out of that and we're going to try and grow the economy effectively so if you want to try and grow your economy you have two options you can either produce more goods uh, and sell them to people or you can develop better services uh, and encourage service industries to kind of come and operate in your country goods are difficult uh, here because well Basically, uh, we don't really manufacture anything in this country anymore because people manufacture it for a lot less in places like China. Um, and it's difficult to see because we have a minimum wage. and I think that's a very good thing for what it's worth. Exactly how we're going to work out how to be competitive in a goods industry like that. So we try and grow the economy uh, or the route we've chosen is grow the economy, especially through service industries. So. Away goes the cap on banker bonuses to try and encourage banks to come to the UK. Uh, away goes the increase in national insurance. Away goes the higher rate of tax. 45% becomes uh, a fixed 40% from everyone upwards. Down goes income tax to try and get the rest of us spending. Uh, I'm not affected by higher rate of tax, by the way, in case anyone's wondering. I mean, fairly obviously I'm not. I'm here. Uh, I don't even live in my own house. Um, out goes uh, stamp duty, or at least the lower part of stamp duty. The threshold for that's rising to 250000 Very interesting to the likes of me trying to buy a house at the moment. Out goes a rise in alcohol tax, um, or proposed rise in alcohol tax. And BAT gets waived for overseas visitors to get them to come along and buy stuff. Um, okay, so that's the broad shape of things. Uh, I don't like the look of this budget very much um, and a lot of people don't like the look of this budget but I think my reasons are different to most people's reasons and I'll tell you why I'm worried about it. It's not because it's trickle-down economics for what it's worth. Um, trickle-down economics as I understand it is supposed to be the idea that you start off by helping the rich and then you hope that that somehow helps the poor or the less well-off uh, along the way basically. So the idea is rich people spend more and more goes into the economy and then you use that to somehow help the, uh, the less well-off in society. This to me looks like the opposite of that for what it's worth. I mean, it starts off with a freeze on energy bills, which helps, well, everybody, uh, but proportionally it helps people who spend more of their income on their energy bills, or we're going to struggle to afford a three and a half thousand energy bill. So this doesn't look like trickle down economics because the usual worry about that is it never trickles down uh, effectively and, and the least well off never benefit. This starts off with the least well off benefit and then try to figure out how the hell we're going to pay for it one way or another. The reason I don't like this, uh, I also have little sympathy, by the way, with the kind of objection that this is a new era um, and we've had the Conservatives in government for the last 12 years. I wouldn't associate this government with the last 12 years any more than I would associate the Labour Party now with the Labour Party of 13 years ago, particularly. So I'm OK with the idea that it's a new post-COVID era as well. Here's why I worry about this budget a lot. It looks to me like a massive risk. Um, and I heard the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, talking about this and he said it wasn't a risk because he said the alternative was worse. Um, and that might be true, or it might not be true, but even if the alternative is worse, that doesn't mean this isn't a risk. Uh, we don't say that sticking all your money into Netflix isn't risky because you could have stuck it all into Palantir, uh, or something like that. We think that's still risky, just maybe the other is more risky. So interest rates are going up at the moment in the UK, and they are going up fast, from what I can see of it. And they're likely to keep going up faster and faster and faster. And that means if your plan is to borrow stuff, uh, your life's got an awful lot more difficult. People are finding that who need to reset their mortgages uh, at the moment. The rate they can reset them at is a lot higher than where it was before, and some people who can't afford the rate increases are likely to run into some difficulties. But that's true whether you're a private citizen or whether you're a government. If you're a government, you don't want to be borrowing at higher rates, and the government's plan here is to borrow and borrow and borrow. 
Um, and this, to me, is where there's a massive, massive risk uh, coming through. And it's why I don't like this budget. It's bold and it's ambitious and it could absolutely win the day. But it needs to come through on the growth side. Um, that economic growth that this is apparently being used to fund has to come through. And if it doesn't, it looks like an almighty long fall uh, for the UK in economic and probably political financial terms. And this could go for a long old time from what I can see of it, Steve. It, it definitely could, yes. So, so one, of, one of the things you really want when you're fighting inflation is um, is a stable currency. It really it really does help matters to keep the currency quite quite stable. And, and as you can see uh, from literally what's happened off the back of this budget is is that the pound has has collapsed. Which for people like Steve and I who are already in um, some American stocks, that's actually been a pretty um, a pretty useful thing for us. Especially, uh, it's kind of for UK investors investing into US stocks, it's kind of hidden some of the losses that the S&P and the NASDAQ uh, have experienced. And, and that's only is only why I was just saying to Steve off air that uh, with FX on my Netflix position, I'm only about 7% away from being green, despite being about 30% off in price. Um, so, I mean, that, that just shows you the sort of the, the, the depth and scale of, of just how much the FX is affecting. We have a bit of a competition in the... Uh, in the uh, in the Discord about who's got the largest effects, and I think I saw somebody touch over thirty percent uh, up on FX, which in, in this a relatively short period of time is is absolutely crazy. Uh, but there's a few things I've picked up uh, uh, that were quite interesting on the subject. I saw um, Larry Summers; he came out straight away and said that the tax cuts are uh, com- utterly irresponsible, and he warned that uh, this was some kind of contagion because the UK is is seen as being one of the uh, sort of financial epicenters, at least in Europe. But it was once the world, but but at least in Europe was one of the financial epicenters. And I think uh, the worry is is that if the the UK can be as irresponsible with their um, policies, that that this might spread outwards uh, and and uh, you know and infect other countries as well. I saw Red Dalio came out and he said that uh, essentially that it smacked of incompetence. Um, which was uh, quite, quite, quite a strong term, really, for a, you know, for a brand new chancellor uh, to, you know, being a few days in the job, and he is already being accused of, uh, of incompetence by uh, Dalio, who, you know, he doesn't say words like that too lightly. I mean, he is a doom and gloom merchant, but he would not single out somebody individually like that for for criticism um but i also saw today that um mohammed alarian as well he has come out and said that uh, the uh, the bank of england is essentially still in central bank la la land uh, he was essentially trying to in- insinuate the same thing that um that the other two were that uh, this is this is not the best move at the moment uh, from the uk government uh, i did see that uh, the Bank of England have started uh, restarted bond buying as well, so essentially we're in inflation and back uh, quantitative ease, easing. Um, uh, they're doing this because uh, they saw some quite serious constraints in the and financial pressures in our financial markets as well. So, uh, in normal times, uh, if a chancellor had uh, done something or done something in his budget or announced something in his budget that caused the Bank of England to move. Uh, with the sort of pace that our Bank of England have moved to cheer up our financial system, that Chancellor would have offered his resignation by the end of the day uh, and quit in embarrassment. But of course, we are in uh, this current um, 
shambolic government. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. And I don't feel like we're going to quite see that happening uh, anytime soon. But Steve, go on. You have some more? Just some thoughts on what you were kind of offering there for what it's worth. I mean, Charlie Munger says, and I'm sort of reminded of this at the moment, that the politicians are never so bad that you don't live to want to see them back again. So, I mean, it's only six weeks ago that we were all staring down a huge energy increase hike, basically. Um, And now I think it's fair to say fairly objectively we're not uh, staring down the same hike in energy increases and so on. Would we rather have had it back again? I mean, it's this is the kind of thing we were discussing with Paul a little bit when Damien was on the show as well. Um, and is it the case that we just kind of need to go... The kind of received wisdom here is that we've got a lot of paying back to do um, and we need some higher interest rates and the currency needs to be strengthened and so on and so forth. And it's going to be a hard road through that, but we might as well start on that road now. Um, and the kind of new administration has said, no, we're going to dig our way a bit further in and then try and grow our way back out of it again i don't know uh whether i think this is um ridiculous or not i think time will tell but i think there's an awful lot of cost to this if it is wrong um because the kind of small c conservative the i.e less risky uh way of doing things would have been to to inflict some temporary pain uh on people and that's very easy for me to say as someone who is unlikely to reach uh, any level that might meaningfully be called poverty uh, as a result of it. Uh, you may well feel differently if you're the kind of person who uh, can afford to heat their house with two and a half thousand, but not with three and a half thousand uh, as an energy bill, something like that. But it's very much flying in the face of things, isn't it? The IMF has had something to say about it. Moody's has had something to say about it, um, threatening to downgrade UK debt and so on. But yeah, the Bank of England, this is the real worry from what I see of it. It looks like government policy here and Bank of England policy are kind of fighting each other a bit, right? Because what you want for borrowing is lower interest rates. The trouble is lower interest rates is likely to mean inflation again, because we've just spent the last, I don't know, what, six months saying, here's inflation, rates are going up to try and fight inflation. Most of the time, we've been saying rates have been going up, and it doesn't seem to have been stopping the inflation thing, either here or in the US, very much. Um, But it feels like this is kind of, the government feels like they want one last bit of kind of, well, what they will see is one last bit of inflation. And of course, there is also a worry, I think, of what happens if this administration doesn't get to see it through. So if we start off doing the borrowing bit, and then sort of change course partway through on that, I, I, this makes me wary uh, of UK things. Yeah, I suppose one of the other things we could really touch upon as well is the uh, the stamp duty freeze is an interesting one to me because I think anybody who's in a fixed rate mortgage at the moment, they cannot seriously be thinking about wanting to move house. So say you're in a five or ten year fix at the moment or seven year or three year fix at the moment and you're thinking, oh, I could do with a bigger house. Um, you know, you're going to be swapping out of a deal which is potentially what, maybe sub 2% between 1% and 2% to a deal that is probably over 6%. So I was talking to my wife about this afterwards and I thought, who who seriously is thinking about moving? Do you know what I mean? I, I would think everybody is in a rush to just stay put. So this here is for uh, for people to buy new homes and straight away you can sort of see, I guess, where I'm going with this. Is that I don't think there's going to be, even with the stamp duty cut, I don't think that's enough uh, when you know we're used to these uh, inflation essentially at like one or two percent and interest rates at 
sub 1% or 1% or, or even negative uh, rail rates, I guess. I don't think anybody's in a real rush to go and, uh, go, go and get a mortgage at 6%. Steve, has it, has it affected your thinking? Are you thinking, you know, 6% is, is okay? Are you thinking 6% now because it'll be 10% next year or... What were you thinking? I think I wouldn't. No, I'm not thinking that six uh, percent now because it'll be ten percent next year. I agree with you. I don't think. I think there's an awful lot of people who, if they attempted to move, would go from paying eight hundred to fourteen hundred uh, or something like that a month, and well, you'd have to do quite a lot better for it to be worth that. I mean, the way it looks to me, and I'm sort of dealing with this mostly uh, in cash, is I'm looking for house prices to come down basically, um, as people can't afford to move. And I'm also looking to an unfortunate, or what I consider to be an unfortunate class of people who fixed their mortgage for quite a while, quite a while ago, uh, fairly intelligently, but their mortgages are now expiring and now they have two options, uh, which is to either refix or to go on to kind of tracker. But from what I saw of it, about half of the UK mortgage products have been withdrawn over the last couple of days. This is, by the way, Wednesday. Could be more, could be less by the time we get to Sunday. This does all feel like a story that's unfolding quite quickly. So some of this may well have moved on. But from what I was hearing at places like Skipton, there's sort of nothing under 5%, certainly at the moment. And anyone who now has to refinance um, could find themselves in a tricky situation. Well, you've got to think that's smart move by the banks, isn't it? Because they've obviously just had a rate hike. So you think, okay, they can reset all their products now. They can set the savings rates at X and they can set the lending products at Y. And, you know, so long as the difference is, is, is good enough, that's great. And then all of a sudden they hear that the Bank of England might need to do an emergency rate hike of another half a percent or potentially more. Um, it, it does make sense that they would withdraw their products and at mm -hmm. least from a business perspective, uh, that they would withdraw their products just temporarily, uh, just to sort of write that, write that ship. So, um, Steve, you may not have anything to say, but I don't know whether you've even heard about it, but I just saw today that one of Labour's policies is to make a great British energy company, uh, which they, uh, I guess they're kind of seeing as a, an EDF of, of Britain. Do you see any merit in that? That's the kind of thing that I need to look at a lot more carefully to know whether I see any merit in it. But, I mean, here's my initial reaction. I think this might be popular uh, for what it's worth. There's clearly a worry around energy bills. I mean, I'm not a political analyst by any means, and I'm not about to start making pronouncements about what I think is right or wrong or what people should or shouldn't do. But I do think a good part of the Liz Truss election campaign success was we're going to tackle energy bills, basically. Uh, I think a popular policy kind of won uh, there in a certain way. And actually, I think quite a few of these po uh, policies will be popular. It's just there's so much noise around it that uh, I say noise. There's so much reaction uh, to it, mm. probably perfectly fair reaction, including from me, not that I'm particularly significant, that this is hugely irresponsible and risky and so on. Once you get past what I think is all the kind of nonsensical political grandstanding, I think it might be a kind of electable thing for Labour, though, and I've never liked Labour's chances better in, since the Conservatives came to government about 12 years ago, sort of post-last financial crisis, uh, than I do now uh, with Keir Starmer in charge. And, I mean, it feels very, very uh, Labour. I mean, the Conservatives were at one point looking like they were doing quite a bit of spending and borrowing, which is traditionally a kind of politically left sort of thing, rather than taking the sort of small-c Conservative route out. Now it looks like Labour needs to do something to differentiate itself. And yeah, building your own energy company um, would be a way of doing it. I have no idea whether I think they have the, the capacity and the skills to do that particularly or how it would work. But it's some nice radical thinking, isn't it? 
it, it it is, isn't it? It does feel to me like it's somewhat um, politics of today, kind of campaigning on the politics of today, not thinking about the politics of tomorrow kind of thing. But I did see uh, a poll that YouGov released, and YouGov are quite a, uh, I think they're quite a conservative outfit. If I seem to remember, the, the CEO of YouGov is a, a donor of Tory. So for them to come up with something uh, quasi positive labour is is interesting but they ask a question they've been asking a question since Starmer came to power and it just the question is really simple is Keir Starmer uh, a prime minister in waiting so uh, what they mean by that is basically are they waiting for the is it just a matter of the general election coming round and Starmer will be prime minister and that that has been sort of hovering around about 15 to 20 percent yes uh, for um for the last um sort of i guess for the last four years but over this last period this end of boris and this beginning of of liz truss that has now gone to just about 50 50 so 50 percent of voters on yougov think that starmer is essentially prime minister in waiting so that is interesting that was just interesting do you have any color on that steve or did you want to shuffle on or not much. I mean, here's what I'll say about Keir Starmer without getting into the politics of uh, him and his ideas for the moment. He's my kind of leader, uh, for what it's worth. I find him to be careful, thoughtful, considered, fairly precise with what he says. He's basically everything that I think Boris Johnson is not, who is blustering, who is distracting, who is all these kinds of things. Um, and I kind of like that, which makes which me, makes me attracted to Keir Starmer as a leader. This was a question about him in particular, rather mm. than kind of Labour policies. Although arguably you can't detach the question from um, of is Keir Starmer a prime minister and waiting for him? Does the Labour Party have a hope in hell at the next election, whenever that is? Realistically, those two are, are closely connected questions. But without taking a view on where we might vote or not vote, or where anyone else should or shouldn't vote, I do like Keir Starmer and his style. Um, I like him more than I liked either Jeremy Corbyn or. Uh, Ed Miliband um, beforehand and I think he looks a lot more credible uh, to me for what that's worth yeah I guess um, I guess he knows how to eat a bacon sandwich as well that's that's the key isn't it I mean I've never seen anybody eat a bacon sandwich as weird as Ed Miliband did yeah he's much more photogenic than Ed Miliband um, and uh, I I like him quite a bit uh, for what it's worth as a politician haven't thought out what I think of Liz Truss to be honest I keep hearing that sound bite in my head about cheese um, from before, uh, where she said it was a disgrace the amount of cheese we imported or something, and uh, uh, that kind of fills me with apathy. But it looks like she's going to do stuff to catch my attention one way or another, mostly by crashing financial markets. From what I can see of it, yeah, well, that that would be that that would be great for the selfish investor that is the both of us, isn't it? Because I mean, there's plenty of stuff that mean you are, uh, are looking at buying, and I think we've got a. You know, we've got a few on the list today that we want to go through with, with our, you know, with you guys. So, yeah, let's get to it. I mean, this is the Playing Footsie Show. We're a finance podcast of a sort. I mean, we're not particularly great at that, but we're definitely not a politics um, podcast. So, anything we say about politics is obviously us speaking in our own kind of personal capacities here. Um, it's absolutely not the view of anyone like Paul or anybody like that. God knows what Paul's view on any of this stuff is. But, uh, okay, let's talk about stocks because markets moving around, um, it sharpens our focus on the stuff that we're watching, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. We have stuff that we occasionally sort of plonk on the watch list because we think it's very good and we have kind of prices in mind and we sort of wonder a little bit about, well, will it ever get there? Don't know. Maybe I'll come back to revisit it someday. But when markets start coming like they have been and there's been some pretty sharp falls in various parts of the markets, 
both sides of the pond, but particularly in the UK, um, we we start taking a closer look at these. What have you been looking at, Steve? Um, really, these are sort of three stocks that I'm one I'm thinking of adding to, and two, uh, well, one I sold and thinking potentially it's getting to a sort of valuation where I'd be tempted to buy it back, and another one is completely new to me. So, I mean, I'll start with the one that I already own, uh, and that's Kering. Um, when I last spoke to you guys, uh, I I was quite interested in this stock, but I'll give you a really quick rundown again, just just for everybody at home who is new to the podcast. Um, so Kering is a is essentially a fashion conglomerate. So in the same way that sort of LVMH owns tons and tons of different brands, Kering is it's like like its little brother, I guess. Um, its main brands are things like Balenciaga and Gucci, Alexander McQueen, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, and it trades on the Paris Exchange under the ticker K E R. Um, it's worth about 55 billion, so it's not, it's not a small company. Um, the last I spoke to you, though, its PE was about between 17 and 18, and I was saying to you, this is getting really close. Well, I mean, its PE is now 15, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty low. It's paying a 2.51% dividend. Uh, revenue still looks to be growing, um, pretty handily. Uh, I think it, managed about 17.6 billion last year i think it's going to get to roughly maybe just under 20 billion this year and in the law of big numbers that's that's good growth um it's not a top line story either it generates a lot of free cash flow um and it's been using that free cash flow to buy back a lot of its stock it was only aiming to knock out about a half a percent of its float its price is almost halved since it announced that. So you know we're talking about one percent of the float of a pretty big company uh, about to be about to be taken out. So uh, I said I was waiting for a whacking good price uh, last time I spoke about Kering, and I thought that was about sort of four seven five to sort of four nine five euros. I ended up nibbling at five hundred, bought a bit at four seven seven, bought a little bit more at five twenty. My average is about four ninety something. It's four fifty today, Steve, uh, and that is uh, that is looking pretty tasty to me. Yeah, four fifty. When you said that you were looking at, I think you said four seven five to four nine five initially, and actually had a bit of a go at five hundred. The question I was going to ask was something along the lines of, well, the pound versus dollar story is is part dollar uh, for what it's worth. The dollar has been strengthening against a lot of stuff, including the pound, um, but especially the pound, which tells you it's kind of also pound as well, as it were, pushing in that direction. I was going to say a weaker pound doesn't particularly worry you then, uh, sort of reaching a little bit higher than you wanted to, but at 450, um, it's another, what, 10% down from where it was before? It is, yeah, another 10%, yeah. That makes sense with that PE coming down as well, actually, the amount you uh, you said there. So the thought there is partly then that sort of high-end demand is remaining and will remain fairly strong here as, I don't know, I guess the rich continue to get richer and keep spending on high-end things? That's what I think we're going to find out. I think there's an element of um, they think that they're going to run into some kind of headwinds here. Uh, potentially people are going to cut down spending. Uh, I think we're about to find out that rich people spend no matter whether there's high energy bills or not. That's the story. That's the, you know, if, I, if we call it a bet. I'm reading Thinking in Bets at the moment, which is probably why over the last few weeks I've kept saying the bet is or the bet is. or, And, and that's what I'm thinking. The bet, if we're to call it a bet, is that I don't think Kering is going to be affected by uh, much of this uh, energy crisis. And, and, and if it is, it's going to mean slightly more muted growth. Uh, I think this company is still going to churn out uh, quite a lot of money. Yeah, quite a lot of money. 
I think it's perfectly fair to call it a bet for what it's worth. I mean, I think it's also perfectly fair to say that in one sense, in a sort of lower case S uh, sense, it's kind of speculative, right? You're making your estimate about what's going to happen in the future. These things don't have their future earnings written on them, though people try and tell you what they are. Um, I think it's fair to say everything we do here is, is in some way uh, making some sort of speculation about the future, uh, hmm. even if it's just that things will remain as they are or that a bunch of contracts that are in place will in fact come through. Hmm. But uh, yeah, okay, so here's one that I've been uh, looking at. I had a bunch of price alerts go off on my screen this week. It doesn't often happen, mostly because I set them quite a while ago and I set them under uh, numbers that they were at. But three of them went off and one of them I had to look up what it was. Um, listeners at home and viewers at home as well, see if you can work out what links these three stocks. I'll tell you their ticker symbol so you can tell me what theme is. Um, so the first one is BNL, which is on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the second one is SLG, which is also on the New York Stock Exchange. And the third one is RMV uh, on the LSE, uh, the London Stock Exchange in this situation. So my guess is that nearly no one will know what the first one of those is. It's not one I hear talks about very often. The second one, I think people, when they find out what it is, will go, oh, yeah, but they won't necessarily recall it. And the third one is right move. Uh, so these are all basically property-based things. The first one is Broadstone Net Lease. Um, can't remember why I put a, a thing on that, to be honest with you, but that came down along with a load of REITs. Um, and this, I said it so long ago, I now can't remember what it was or what it did, but I've had another look and I'm going to keep looking at that for the time being. Uh, SLG is uh, SL Green, the office REIT in Manhattan, which at the time I set that alert was uh, upping its dividend and paying out a big special one as people were making noise that no one was ever going to go back to an office ever uh, in the middle of the COVID stuff. But the one that's really catching my eye at the moment is Rightmove, which has been falling in response to all that stuff we were saying about house prices uh, not so long ago. Um, earlier in the show, in fact, sorry. They've been buying their stock back over the last couple of days, Steve. This only kind of uh, came across my radar today. They've been buying back sort of 0.02% on one of the days and 0.03% today, uh, Wednesday, as we record this, and then another kind of fraction of a percent uh, on Monday. They're quietly buying bits back here. I'm not sure whether they do that kind of mechanically or whether that's because they think it's particularly good value at the moment and it's discretionary, but this has come down an awful long way. Um, it's now... Pay, it's gone under a fiver uh, a share, which is where I once owned it and then sold it at five something a share because I thought I would never build a big enough position in it. And now it's come back into interesting territory again. There is some macroeconomic headwind, to put it mildly, on this. The UK property sector, when I talked about this, actually, you, you asked me whether I was worried about the UK property sector as a being a bit hot at the moment as a reason to avoid buying this at that moment. And I said, no, and I think I still stick by that thought, but looks a lot more attractive now. Yeah, it definitely does. I've been buying this one as well, Steve. Um, I bought uh, a little bit in the, uh, I think it was the mid uh, mid 500s, but it, it rapidly lost that ground. And, and I said to you, so where, where, where are we? Where, where are we buying this? Do you know what I mean? This is where's this going to end up? Um, I guess right moves lifeblood is listings, and if we think that perhaps there's going to be a slowdown in listings, a, a slowdown in in moving, um, then you know that that could. Uh, you know that could be that could be some material weakness for right move, I guess. But you've got to think about uh, the times that we're about to go into. Hopefully, will not last forever. I, I think I, you wouldn't buy right move if you were going to be a pessimist about the UK's uh, property future. I think that would be uh, a terrible move. But if you think that 
you know, the UK's uh, housing industry will get back to sort of the same levels that we were, uh, you know, before the, the pandemic, then this stock looks really, really attractive at this kind of price at the moment. And, you know, if you're, if you're happy to sit in it and wait, you're getting nearly a 2% yield, which is pretty well covered. A company that's happy to buy back its stock when, you know, the price is going down, which, you know, for me is, is really, really sensible. It's a stock that's traded at a premium for uh, probably the best part of five years now. So to see that premium be wiped out by, yes, higher earnings and, and a declining um, stock price, I think it looks really attractive at the moment. I'd be interested in buying quite a lot more. So would I. Um, if you look at this on uh, the Yahoo Finance kind of mobile app stuff, for what it's worth, gives you a nice kind of chart of revenue and income, or I suppose anywhere that offers you those kind of graphs, you will see pretty much everything going in the direction you want it to be going in. It's just every block is higher than the previous block. That ain't going to last forever, fairly obviously, and it probably ain't going to last another year, the way the property market is going. But the question, I guess, to keep in mind then is, well, look, how far off do you think it's going to come? Do you think it's going to go back to 2021 levels? Do you think it's going to go back to... Uh, 2018 levels? Do you think it's going to go back to 2020 levels, uh, the pandemic year in there and so on and so forth? Um, I think that this is, and there's a bit of a theme coming back here with one of my later stocks here. I think this is an overreaction, the amount of market cap they're losing for the amount of earnings I think they're going to lose. That kind of implies, that only matters if you think they were priced correctly before their stock started coming down, and I perhaps thought they were a little expensive. Um, but I do think there's a lot more come off this stock than ought to have for the moment. So I'm looking quite carefully at that. And this is a really good example of one of those where you want to think to yourself, well, look, it's not cheap just because it's down. Uh, nothing is ever cheap just because it's down. It's cheap because it's gone down past a certain level and you want to form your own view of what that level is. And I think I have mine and I ha now have an average of 490 on this. I don't normally say what I'm buying because... Well, I have a big thing about hand. I want you to ever really believe a YouTuber when they do that. So believe me or not, I don't mind. Um, uh, but yeah, averaging 490 on this, I'm kind of reasonably happy there. And I guess it's a company that, um, you know, people will look at and say, look, it's got a PE of 22. It's got to come back down. But I mean, this is a real premium company. They're, they're churning out nearly 60% net margins, not gross margins, net margins. I mean, there's companies that don't do that gross. I mean, Beyond Meat can't even make any money gross margin so <laughs> you know i mean and people are happy to pay a valuation which is uh far more than uh what you'd be paying for something like right move um which is yeah i think it's one of our little uh you know we we do say that that we don't have many tech businesses in the uk but i guess really we should look at right move and say you know this is a business with uh it's, which is essentially tech with uh in, incredible margins it's kind of a uh, um, sort of a bellwether for just how tech can be if it was fully optimized to, you know, to, to churn a profit. Uh, the only issue you have with things that have a 60% net margin is that somebody wants to come along who is happy to take a 50% net margin. And that tends to mean, uh, you know, there'll be a squeeze on them, but uh, right move have been very good at batting these, these kind of competitors away. Um, but for me at the moment, I think, I mean, I'm still buying it. I can foresee some short-term pain, but I think buying in these kind of moments a stock like Right Move is is a pretty good move for for my money. Cool. What else are you looking at? Uh, so, I mean, fresh off the back of the the budget, uh, all of our financials um, this um, 
this this week, I guess it's Wednesdays we record. I've been taking uh, uh, pretty much a battering. I guess is the only way I can describe it. Um, so one of the ones I was looking at um, was uh, legal in general. I used to own the stock Elgen. Uh, it's a um, life insurance come asset manager um, in the UK and uh, does some sort of pension risk transfer in America. Um, it was a stock that I bought in the pandemic. I bought it around two pound. I sold it at two sixty, two seventy, and two eighty. So I made quite a decent amount of money on that, um, as well as the cracking dividend. Which you know, if you ever get chance uh, and legal and general dividend time, that is a fun time to be in our Discord because uh, it's just go. It goes absolutely nuts with people posting all of their uh, <laughs> all of the dividend income coming in. But anyway. Having a quick look at it, it's about a 13 billion quid company at the moment. Uh, it's got a PE of about six and a half. Uh, it's dividend, which is about is high. It's about 7.6%, but actually under its current financials looks pretty secure. Um, you know, all of this is with the caveat that it's a financial, everything can change in a heartbeat. Uh, we are in a very sort of uncertain time for financials. Um, the one thing I would sort of caveat on top of that is, is that its book value is about 1.26 times at the moment, which is uh, it's a tiny bit high for a company if you were looking for something really cheap. Um, but legal in general is getting to the kind of price where, um, you know, where I'd be interested in taking another look at it. It's uh, it's down about 8.5% today, Steve. Is it something you'd be thinking about getting back in? Probably not. You use the expression back in, which gives away that, yes, I also once owned this and I don't at the moment. I sold it at about 255. I looked that up before I came on um, here. But the price wasn't really the reason I sold it. I had a bit of a route through my portfolio because it was one of the earliest things I bought uh, for what it's worth when I started investing and built out a fair bit more. And it's very difficult not to be up quite significantly on something you bought during the COVID period, right? It doesn't actually matter whether you chose your companies very well or very poorly, mm. especially if it's a fairly conserv small C conservative thing like uh, legal in general, right? So not a speculative tech thing like um, Peloton or whatever. Hard to not be up quite a significant amount still. Uh, at the time that I got rid of it. But I went back through it and I was trying to figure out what I think its competitive moat is. Because uh, insurance is a bit of a commodity business. Um, legal in general is a well-known brand of a sort. But I, when I think about insurance, I don't think about myself as massively brand loyal particularly. I mean, I want an established business that's going to still be there to pay out when the time comes to pay out on life insurance. But I struggled to work out what I thought their real kind of advantage was, and therefore I got rid of it. I haven't managed to answer that question in my own mind yet, which is likely to stop me getting back into it. Um, that said, if I can get myself around that idea, would I be happy compounding my money at 7 8% or so uh, into the future? Yes, absolutely. Um, I can see why plenty of people own it. I wish them very well, collecting dividends off of that sort of thing. Um, the... Other thing about legal in general that I was thinking is that, well, two things actually, sorry. One is their commitment to their dividend is very responsible. It's gone up pretty much every year, but they did pause it during the pandemic stuff, from what I remember. Uh, I don't mean stop the dividend. I mean, they just didn't increase it. They kept it where it was to the disappointment of the markets at the time, I think. But that to me is encouraging. That's a company that's thinking sensibly about what it can and can't afford. Um, and then rising interest rates. Legal in general is a company that I think might do sneak well out of it. So they invest their insurance float in bonds, I think. As the bonds they have expire and they replace them with ones that have higher yields on them, I would expect them to do kind of reasonably okay in that because they'll just get a better result as a result of interest rates going up. 
Um, so lots of like about this company. I have nothing bad to say about it. The reason I'm unlikely to buy it back again, my stock is because I'm struggling to pin down what its competitive advantage is over um, some of the others. I've tried to get Boss Hog uh, over on his videos to tell me a little bit. He talks about them a fair bit and Phoenix Group. And I haven't quite managed to pin down exactly for my own satisfaction what he sees as the, the real competitive advantage of these things. He talks about them being well run, but I, I'm just trying to get that clear in my own head before I stick my own money into it. Fair enough if he understands it. It's not quite there for me yet. Yeah, I guess the uh, insurance arm is kind of like the engine for these kind of companies, uh, and they win their business generally by scale. Um, you know, there is some skill in underwriting, but generally scale is the, the best way to hide your uh, your mistakes uh, with something like underwriting. Uh, the the jewel in uh, legal in general's crown is probably the wealth uh, the wealth and pension risk transfer arm of their business, but that makes it exponentially more difficult to understand. Um, so Steve and I have actually written an episode on how to value an insurer, uh, but we think it perhaps might be a, a little bit dry. But uh, maybe if you are interested in that, get in touch with us and, and, and let us know because we we may release it and we we may release it as like a second midweek episode to apologise, <laughs> you know, so it doesn't doesn't cover any. Actually, good content, but um, you know, if that's something you're interested in, let us know. I mean, when you start bolting on the additional businesses, it does become somewhat more difficult. You, you almost need a, a degree to figure each one of them out. But uh, you're right in when you say that things are very commoditized in the insurance business. And I think legal in general understand that as well, and it's why they've sold off so many arms of the business. They're like, I don't want to compete for the, the cheapest car insurance because that, that's a nuisance. But I think they're changing from being a broad insurer, a broad underwriter to a specialist insurer. And that's quite interesting to me. And you hope that in specializing in specific areas that they can maybe shake a little bit of that sort of uh, commoditized uh, label and, and then maybe, maybe be able to just get a little bit of margin here and there. You're right, though. Uh, everything they own will, in the floor especially, will be pretty much in bonds and as bond yields improve uh, that should be good for legal in general and it, but the opposite of that is this is also a place where uh, insurers haven't been for a very long time they they the people who know how to buy a uh, high yield bonds are probably uh, they're probably not working there anymore um so it will be interesting to see whether they can steer the ship through through this period obviously Nigel Wilson is an old CEO he's been been there quite a while. I think he's 65 or 67 off the top of my head. So uh, whether he'll want to stick around through this period or whether whether he doesn't uh, is interesting. But I think legal in general is an interesting business. I think it's getting to an interesting price. Um, one for the watchers. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. Uh, here's my candidate for rising interest rates and likely to do well as a result for what it's worth. Uh, over the other side of the pond is Wells Fargo. Um, this is one we don't talk about very often, but rising interest rates, I think, leave them quite nicely placed here. So banks in general, uh, their kind of core operations, leave aside the kind of trading and investment banking stuff, do better when rates are higher. So the way they want to make their money is by lending you money at one rate and to earn borrowing it off you by form of deposits and so on at a different rate, a lower rate, more or less. And their money is going to be the gap between the interest they get on stuff like mortgages um, and the interest they pay on stuff like savings accounts uh, or whatever. So Wells Fargo is basically a specialist in this kind of core uh, banking activity. And I think they can do well here as interest rates come higher. They're falling along with a lot of the US market and they're starting to get to a level that I think might be kind of interesting. The reason we've not had any interest in them in the last couple of years is 
Well, after people said their dividend was safe, it turned out it really wasn't. Uh, they got whacked by an asset cap after some pretty major fraud uh, there. They now have a decent amount of regulatory requirement to deal with, and it's going to be a little while until they kind of get anywhere near having completed that. But once they get out from under their asset cap, and they've been making slow progress getting out from under that asset cap, it looks to me like this stock looks cheap uh, after they kind of get clear of it with a turnaround you don't want to kind of be too early on this one of the issues i have around intel which is now in the mid-20s from what i can see of it is it's a turnaround story but it looks like it's at the start of the turning around rather than sort of towards the end of the turning around which means that you're going to have to sit around for a few years until it really kind of turns itself about uh, i've no doubt it will in the end but i would need a clearer picture of how that turnaround is going to look wells i think is further down the pipe uh, on this one and i think that higher interest rates will be kind of helpful to them even with kind of limited assets i think they stand to do better um why them and not sort of jp morgan or bank of america they're probably a worse outfit than those but i think they're priced better in their pure focus uh, and they have better interest rate exposure than either of the two who are uh, also trading um operations so yeah, Wells Fargo is my one that I'm kind of keeping an eye on. It's US-based, of course, Steve. That put you off? Uh, only slightly. Um, I think there's still bargains to be had in America at the moment, but it's just that exchange rate at the moment feels so alien um, to be wanting to go and buy something when the exchange rate is you know, under, under 110 feels feels quite tricky at the moment. But Wells Fargo, as you correctly say, is a bit more of a... Easy to understand bank, I guess, is my my favourite way. But it it doesn't often get terribly involved in uh, IPOs and investments and and things like that. It's 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 more of a, I guess, it's more of a consumer focused bank with some uh, additional um, corporate lending, uh, which makes it very easy to understand. I, I I think it's primarily one of the reasons that Buffett owned it is that uh, for quite a long period of time he understood that. Uh, exactly how it worked. I remember there's quite a few comments about him reading through uh, American banks saying, "How can you, how can you value something like this? You know, there is there is either no value or some value, uh, and you know you cannot actually pinpoint, you know, what is the correct answer at that time." So I, I guess I guess it's where you like Wells Fargo. Are they allowed to buy back stock at the moment, Steve? Are they doing that? I'm not sure at the moment. Um, I think they might be, uh, or at least allowed to uh, for the time being. They. I think we're in the business of pushing their dividend last I saw, uh, which has now reached about 3%, which is close to parity with something like JP Morgan and I think higher than Bank of America, uh, for what it's worth. So the kind of real attraction, I guess, to some of these big financials is, as you say, they have strong capital return uh, programs and they're easy enough to understand. Um, it has a big installed base and its idea is to basically pay out dividends and buy back shares and your increased interest in the company goes up as you go along. If they're not, um, that presumably only means that they're keeping cash on the sidelines and ready to uh, go when the time comes. Is it Wells Fargo over JP Morgan or is it both at the moment? Gosh, that's tough to say, isn't it? Um, JP Morgan, as you say, is more complicated um, and it might be better value at this stage. Uh, JP Morgan at close to 100. I was working out which of these to put down. I could have put down either, to be honest. JP Morgan at 105, I've written down um, as something I could have said. I thought it looked attractive, but for them, uh, ask me when I've got the actual money uh, to do something here, um, and I'll, I'll see what mood I'm in. What else you got on your list? All theoretical. I actually bought some JP Morgan at 112. I've been buying it at 105 as well, and uh, I think it got close to 100 a couple of times. I, I only got mm. a, a really small handful. It's just been loose change purchases. I think I've, I think I've got a total of 
three shares or five shares, uh, but it does look very attractive to me as well. Um, so the last one on my list is um, is a company uh, across the pond, but the different different pond. Uh, this one is uh, on the Paris Exchange again, actually, uh, unusually. Uh, this is a company called Biomaru. Um, it's uh, a French stock. Um, it's primarily uh, a medical diagnostics company, which, uh, as you can imagine, was quite handy to be during the pandemic. Um, but uh, the, the money it's made from COVID, it has doubled down on things. It hasn't built unnecessary amount of labs or whatever, thinking that COVID was going to stick around forever. It's actually been using that money quite wisely. So one of the things it's focusing on now outside of that is is the next sort of leg of the company's journey. It's anti, antimicrobial resistance, so things like MRSA uh, and and sort of antibiotic resistant um, uh, things of things of that nature, essentially. So. This company's got really, really tough comps, uh, and the tougher because uh, COVID testing essentially is going away. So, um, you know, for them to still manage to grow when uh, quite a large portion of their business was COVID related, uh, that has now gone. They managed to grow about 5% on their top line, and they added a little bit to their bottom line uh, and top line guidance as well. And I thought that was quite impressive because, you know, the COVID. They used the COVID boom to sort of like sensibly grow the other aspects of its business. And and I think this is a good trend. I think this is what you'd expect to see sort of carry on from them. So um, I think analysts are expecting less out of the bottom line this year. Um, its forward PE is quite a bit higher than its trailing PE. And the reasons for this are the standard reasons that you've been experiencing with almost every company this year. And um, it's essentially that they're going to see a lot of inflationary costs to the things that they need to do their business. Um, and in the same way that I'm inclined to sort of forget about next year um, with sort of, with, well, with, with most of my stocks, to be honest, I'm inclined <laughs> to forget about it with this one. Um, so trailing P at the moment, this is an, I think this is an example of what this company can do uh, in normal circumstances. Trailing P of about 16, uh, you know, growing pretty handily, uh, pays a 1% dividend as well, which I slipped in there because just in case Paul came uh, on the show. But um, <laughs> I think it's a, a pretty interesting stock in a, in a pretty interesting sector. If you want to be, uh, if you want to be exposed to new drugs and uh, you, you, know, you want to be, you think um, sort of antibiotic resistance is a big movement, then a company like Biomaru will give you um, some exposure to that sector, but in a way that you can understand it, if you see what I mean. Like, you're never going to know as a layman which drug uh, is going to be, you know, whether a phage is going <laughs> to, I'm going to say whether a layman is going to go and explain whether a phage can disable a microbial uh, resistance, which apparently it can, but you're never going to know <laughs> who's going to crack that code first. Um but with Biomaru, at least you get some exposure to that sector. So that, that's something I think is uh, – that's a company that I think is pretty interesting. Um, it looks pretty cheap at the moment. Pays a nice little dividend just to tick you along. Uh, is on the lookout to buy back some stock, although I, said, I, I think they cancelled that program when they uh, when they released their guidance because um, – you know, there were, there were pressure, sort of pressures, uh, pricing pressures, uh, inflationary pressures. Um, but looks like an interesting company to me. I like what you said at the start uh, for this, for what it's worth. So they obviously had a, a nice boom during kind of COVID times, right? Because everywhere in that sector did, and justifiably so. 
But I do like it when companies don't. I mean, this doesn't speak well to Amazon for what it's worth. I do like it when companies don't suddenly start saying, well, look, this is how things are going to be forever and always. And this is the beginning of the new age of whatever it is, because it oftentimes isn't. Um, it's often there are kind of shifts that, that are more durable, stuff like working from home and so on. But um, it seems to me unusual that these it seems really easy, I guess, I suppose, for companies to kind of go mad and off their head. Um, with spending because they think, look, this is how it's going to be forever, uh, and so on. And actually, perfectly sensible companies do this too, right? I mean, we saw Target, um, perfectly sensible, well-run uh, retailer, getting their inventory all out of whack because, well, people suddenly stopped buying um, flat-screen TVs and lawn furniture and so on, and Target found themselves left with a load of it. And that's not to be critical of them, particularly. They've got to try and do stuff. But um, I liked the fact that this is a company It's kind of fairly circumspect and cautious with its um its outlays i suppose yeah and i think that's the thing that i like probably the most about them is is that they've been really really smart with the capital allocation they've kind of realized that covid isn't going to be around here forever and they've started to and they have been using that money to that they've, they've generated to go out and buy companies and buy things and buy new testing centers for different different things so uh, they've um the two most recent purchases with this antimicrobial resistance company that they've bought, I think they're called Specific. And they've also bought um, another company as well, which does a sepsis testing kit. And then they've been pushing through some other diagnostic tests that they do, which is for, um, and it's got, I can't remember what it was for, but it's got the FDA, um, the fast tracking program uh, on it as well. So mm -hmm. uh, they are really quite smartly spending the money they have previously generated to generate future income, which I guess is all we can ever ask for of a company. Uh, it's an interesting one. It's on my watch list. I, I just haven't quite been able to pull the trigger on it yet, but I, it's again, it's one of those where I just don't feel like I'm a million miles away. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to how I think companies ought to work and how you think they ought to work. Get money, work out intelligent things to do with that money. It might be acquiring more businesses. It might be investing in the businesses you already have. It might be dividending it out to shareholders if you can't think of a way to do either of those previous things. Or it might be buying back your stock uh, <laughs> if you think it's underpriced and you will benefit shareholders by doing that. Um, not everyone feels that way, of course. There are people who think that you should just dividend out all of your money immediately directly you get it. Um, but speaking of how I kind of think of businesses and owning them, I, I like the sound of that sort of thing. We're approaching the hour mark, so I'll tell you about my last one. Uh, it's also a healthcare stock. Uh, nice, pleasing symmetry. We both had a financial, we both have a healthcare. Um, mine's Glaxo that I've been looking at just a little bit recently, and it's not actually a kind of immediate budget reaction uh, type of thing here in the way that Rightmove is. Um, but it is another kind of overreaction thing. Anyone that follows Glaxo will know that they're currently dealing with some lawsuits um, uh, because them and Sanofi, another French listed stock that um, I lazily assume you like because it's listed on a European exchange, um, is tackling some class action lawsuits, I think, uh, concerning potentially cancerous side effects from Zantec, which is a heartburn uh, medicine, uh, medicine or medication sorry, that they, I think, sell over the counter. Um, that's not funny and that's not good. Um, but I do think the kind of response to this from the stock price might be overblown here. So 30 billion came off Glaxo's market cap. It's been coming down since there almost immediately. Um, it's been coming down a fair bit since then as a result of, um, more general stock market movements and being caught up in the general move of things. But 30 billion off seems like quite a lot to me. I didn't think this was an expensive stock before, although it wasn't one that I was particularly interested in buying. But I was reading somewhere that the average settlements for uh, these kind of lawsuits tend to be between 2 billion and 7 billion. 
Um, and I don't know quite what I think that means in terms of market cap, but 30 billion off seems to me to be kind of pretty much fearing the worst uh, for what it's worth. For one thing, they haven't lost this lawsuit yet, and I'm not saying they won't or shouldn't and so on. Um, but I am looking at that and trying to work out, well, exactly how bad is this kind of uh, situation? And from what I can see of it, I find it hard to justify 30 billion coming off its market cap. Um, it feels to me like people are pricing the worst here and we know markets don't like uncertainty in general. Um, so this is something that I'm sort of keeping a close-ish eye on. They've, of course, recently spun out their consumer products business, possibly not super intelligently. They got less floating it than they would have done if they'd flogged it to Unilever, um, which also, as I've said before, I think doesn't speak terribly well of Unilever trying to buy it at those prices. Uh, but... Um, they're now effectively the kind of business that is harder to evaluate, the kind where we were talking, you were saying, in fact, we're talking pipelines and so on and so forth, but they have a good lineup. Um, they're a slimmer, lighter business. They're effectively a pure play farmer. They might just be getting caught up in some temporary headwinds here that um, is leading to their stock being cheaper than it ought to be. There's a dividend of a sort. I didn't look it up because I didn't think Paul was coming today. Just looking at their operating cash flow, so they look like they're doing about ten and a half billion in operating cash flow. That's in dollars because I was looking at the litigation as mm. well. So even if the litigation comes in at you know half of what we're expecting at fifteen billion, that's only one and a half years operating cash flow. So you would assume that the business would be able to raise debt at a decent rate to cover that, uh, to cover any shortfalls in that debt. So this to me doesn't look like. Uh, this is, you know, it's not the sort of problem that when you looked at something like 3M and you thought, God, if that lawsuit comes off, they're in serious bother. Um, mm. You know, this looks like the sort of thing that GSK, you know, should they lose, uh, the case would would quite comfortably be able to weather. Um, in terms of dividends, Steve, it, it looks like a pretty decent yield. There's quite a lot come off that price at the moment. It looks like the yield's about 7 and a bit percent. So, uh that seems quite high. I might just check that. That, that does seem quite it high. Out. It feels to me like that might be factoring in some pre-restructuring stuff. So part of the dividend coming out of the consumer product thing. I'd be interested in what their kind of couple of more recent things are. But, uh, oh, 4.25. That sounds Sorry. more like what I was thinking of. Uh, 4.25. Something in the 4% region is what I was thinking of. But um, if you like dividends and you, I think it's probably paid quarterly because this is an American exposed uh, thing, and you like collecting them and reinvesting them, there's a 4% thing at Glaxo for you, and I think that stock can possibly go higher if you are good at forecasting or interested in forecasting where share prices might go, which I'm not. But I think its cash flows are going to be pretty good. Sounds good. Cool. Well, that was our show. Uh, we finished with Glaxo, and Paul, as I understand it, is somewhere beginning with G, but I don't quite know where. He's either in Glasgow, Greece, or Germany. Uh, hopefully he'll be with us next week, but meanwhile, thanks for listening. It's been the Playing Footsie Show. Good luck with your investing, everyone, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>